0: Hello,
1: good afternoon. I want to welcome you to uh, another public conversation in our ongoing series. These are convened by the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, which is the School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. I'm Larry Jacobs. I'm a professor at the uh, Humphrey School and director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance, which is convened and organized today's session. Uh, This conversation is part of an ongoing series we've done for a number of years. Obviously, it's online rather than in person. Um, Do you wanna mention as part of our tradition, we welcome questions. You will see at the bottom of your page, there is a uh, icon for Q and A. Please uh, share your questions. We're gonna get to as many as we possibly can. Uh, And it's a great way to kind of open our discussion. I um, want to just quickly mention a, a few of our upcoming programs. If you're interested in elections coming in November, uh, we've got a, uh, a strong program coming up on May 5th at noon central time. It looks at how we could scale up the process of voting by home. There's a lot of conversation going on around the country, including in Minnesota, about Uh, using a vote by mail, whether it's more inclusive or or not. Um, And so we've got someone who's one of the leaders in the field joining us to talk about that. Uh, Coming up on May 19th is a conversation I'm particularly looking forward to. It's two of the top experts in the country um, from across the aisle. One is Vin Weber, former uh, uh, Republican member of Congress, who is one of the top Uh, Republican strategist, and he's being joined by Anna Greenberg, who is his counterpart among Democrats, well-known political consultant, Um, and it's going to be a terrific conversation. What will the fall elections look like? Well, we're getting started on it with two uh, terrific guests uh, coming up um, on May 19th. Um, I'm very pleased today to have with us uh, Paul Kazelka. He is the highest ranking Republican in the Minnesota government. Uh, The uh, governor is Tim Tim Waltz. Uh, He's a Democrat in Minnesota. For those of you who are outside the state, the Democrats go by the label, Democrat Farmer Labor or DFL, but they're Democratic Party. Um, uh, uh, Senator Gazelka uh, was elected uh, to Minnesota House in 2004 and served from 2005 to seven, and then was elected to the Minnesota Senate and has served since 2011. He is the majority leader in the Minnesota uh, Senate where he's uh, since 2017. Um, so uh, he's a very important figure uh, in Minnesota politics, and we're delighted to have him with us. Thank you so much, Senator Gazelka.
0: Really uh, good to be here, Larry, and uh, doing it from my kitchen table. So in case there's a noise, um, it's not my fault.
1: <laughs> well, we're, we're just glad to have you with us. I wanted to start off uh, with just uh, a conversation about politics Minnesota way. Um, we had a guest in last week, uh, Shanto Yengar, who's a well-known political science professor, at least among political scientists at Stanford who talked about what he described as the hateful loathing of Democrats and Republicans among voters and in our uh, state and national capitals. Is that the way you would describe Minnesota politics that the parties and the leadership are you know, don't talk to each other and just kind of uh, filled with hate and loathing?
0: Well, if you go back six or eight years, I think you'd probably say yes. Um, but you know, I, 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 became leader at the perfect time in my political career, um, back in the end of 2016, I'd been long enough here that I just was, just did not like the unnecessary bickering. I mean, we're going to disagree and, and, and do it passionately, but I said then uh, that we have to lower the tone in Minnesota, that we could be an example for the country and, uh, developed a very good relationship with then Mark Dayton and, uh, uh, now we have a new Speaker of the House and a new uh, governor as well, and frankly, I think the three of us in divided government are very pragmatic. Uh, we're passionate about what we believe, and but when we get to a place that we know the other person's not going to go there, we move on and, and all kind of be are more pragmatic and um, I've always told our folks if if the governor's doing something right, I'm going to say it. Uh, we don't have to always cut each other down. I just I just think that's not productive doesn't work in your family relationships. I'm a small business owner, doesn't work there. So why do you think it would work in government? And so I'm I'm proud of how we do uh, politics in Minnesota.
1: One of the things that struck me about uh, the nature of this relationship that you have with the Democrats and the governor's uh, office and the speaker of the house is the fact that you seem to talk a lot. Um, And the talking is sometimes negotiations Sometimes it seems to be checking in and just, uh, you know, thermometer checking, you know, how do you feel about this? Or do you have ideas about this? Or how would you react to this? Or what are your suggestions? Is that true? That's my impression, but is it true?
0: Yeah, it's absolutely true. Um, you know, I think it, everything is about building a relationship and so Speaker Hartman and I talk regularly and the governor and I talk regularly um, it's from the relationship that you can really figure out what's important to that other person and what's not, what's political posturing worth versus what do they really want to get done. Um, just one example, um, uh, the, the Senate uh, decided that we, we felt like we needed to meet every three days uh, after an extended time of not getting together. And, uh, the, and uh, April 14th, that was going to happen no matter what, if, unless we agreed to do something else. But it also meant that the House had to meet every three days and having a conversation with uh, Speaker Hortman, it was like it was there was real concern about doing that every three days in the House. And so we were able to talk through it. And I could see that it was a genuine concern for the members there. And so we were able to, to modify a resolutions so that they could meet whenever they wanted. And we met every three days.
1: Okay, let's jump into the issue of the moment, uh, the coronavirus and how the state of Minnesota is responding. Um, Obviously, the president uh, has been a big figure in this. Um, And about a week ago, he talked about liberate Minnesota and you saw it ripple across the country, including 800 people who met um, as protesters in front of the governor's mansion um, on Summit Avenue. one of the organizers of that protest uh, said that um, people can figure out for themselves, what are the proper precautions? Is that your, your,
0: your orientation as well? Yeah, that's a loaded question with a number of pieces of that. Uh, you know, first of all, the protests started happening. And then, and then President Trump you know, tweeted out to liberate Minnesota. So that, that was the order of that. But then the very next day he called the governor and, And worked through the fact that we're doing things a little different Minnesota as far as the getting testing up and going and getting personal protection equipment and and so as you see their their relationship has actually uh, developed stronger and and so I'm I'm always telling people follow the CDC guidelines as far as you know safe distancing and washing your hands and all of that that's always been part of my message you know the governor and I disagree on on some of the sheltering in place and some of that but you know, Following some of these common sense um, things that we all can do is really important. And the other thing I tell people is, look, I, I support the president in his quest to defeat COVID-19, and I support Governor Walsh's quest in this. I mean, we're really all in it together, and it's, it, it's important that we push each other if we have a different idea, but we can do it respectfully. And in the end, we're all going to do better if the president and our governor win in this. It's, it's important that we, we really get a handle on this.
1: You gave a speech in the middle of April. Um, I think it was in the floor of the Senate here in Minnesota, and you said, um, essentially, um, we have to figure out how to fight COVID nineteen and protect our livelihoods. It's a balance. We have to do. We can do both. We have to figure out how to do that. What does that
0: mean in practice? What's your plan? So that, that was. We, where the governor and I disagreed is when he sheltered in place everyone, I really felt like we should just shelter in place seniors and the vulnerable. That was the group that really is impacted by COVID-19 and then figure out how do we move forward. Um, and so uh, that it was a result of maybe me being a small business owner and, and, and intuitively feeling the consequences of shutting everything down. It just, it doesn't work. Uh, the way I think people think it does, it does, doesn't come back automatically. Many, many people are going to lose their businesses, their jobs, and and that's the the part that's on the other side of this issue. And then all the mental health issues, the domestic abuse issues, the increased suicide you know that's the portion of our livelihood that I talk about. And so, and I know the governor cares about that too. And and so it's it's those two tensions. COVID-19, you know, you could strangle it completely, shut everything down for a year, and maybe we would stop it. But then our whole con- economy would collapse. And so there's this, this balance between the two. If you go too far on one, you could hurt the other one and vice versa. And so that's where the tension uh, for the governor and I, I think, is very healthy. Many conversations, uh, just he and I, uh, behind closed doors, just talking about the consequences of both sides of that, and uh, so that's, that's how it's been working.
1: I wanna follow up on several different things you've said, but let me just start with this idea of limiting the uh, stay indoors, the social isolation to those who are most vulnerable. Um, we know from research that's now starting to come out that somewhere between about a quarter and maybe a half of those who become sick with the coronavirus show no symptoms. So if you've got a system or a plan that says, we're just going to lock in the vulnerable and everybody else, you can go about your work abiding by social distancing, abiding by the CDC on hygiene, unless you feel sick, then you self-isolate. What do you do if people don't feel sick and are contagious?
0: Yeah. And that's part of the the risk that you have to balance. And I, and when I, said that, I think it was intuitive. Um, uh, About uh, 10 or 12 days ago, the governor released the University of Minnesota modeling, and it actually showed that if you shelter at home, the vulnerable and the the seniors, that your death rates or mortality rates are the same number. uh, And I don't know if it's changed since then, but 22,000 is what they're predicting deaths as if we uh, sheltered at home everyone it was the same number of beds that would be required uh, under both models. The only difference was the peak came in July under the present path that we're on instead of June. And the benefit of doing that earlier, getting to the peak earlier, is that we get beyond it quicker so that the economy can get back on its feet. Because that's the other thing that I'm you know, very, very concerned about. And, and so it's not about stopping the peak. I think the governor would say the peak is still going to come. It's just going to come later. And so that's, that's the part of this pandemic that is so difficult is we can't stop it. That, that's not the, has never been anybody's goal. And you hear a number of folks talk about herd immunity, you know, that you work towards herd immunity and then make sure you have enough resources to take care of the people that are in, in going to be in dire need of an ICU bed or or ventilators and that kind of thing and so but now we have the testing that the governor said that we need to open things up. And he said if when we have five can do five thousand a day. Well, I've been told we can do about twenty thousand a day. And then the second thing to open things up was that we had enough personal protection equipment. And just within the last two weeks, the federal government gave us about thirty-five million pieces of glass or uh, gloves and masks and uh, shields and that kind of stuff. And so. But it's a balancing act. And I, you know, I get that we can make missteps, but then we have to correct them no matter who we are.
1: Uh, As you said, the uh, commitment to opening up the economy, it's not partisan. No. Excuse me. Um, And the governor has, uh, I think since your speech, taken steps that have now expanded um, the ability of, he says, 80% of employees... Uh, to go back to work if they uh, follow the plan he has in place, uh, which includes many of the things you've talked about, social distancing, hygiene, um, and limiting it to businesses that don't have uh, kind of direct interaction with, with
0: customers. Is he heading in the right direction now? Yeah, for sure. And, um, and I tell him what he is. And I, and I think the, the dial concept is a, is a good way to, to move towards something that, that people can see um, my conversations with them now in the last week have been about, how do we open up churches, uh, what do we do about the, the single hair salon or the barber, um, how, what are we going to do about restaurants, and all of those are things that I think we have to embrace, that they're going to open, uh, but that it's not going to be the same as what it was. and so. But the governor's looking at all of those things as well. And, you know, that's where it's beneficial, frankly, for me to be on the other side of the aisle, giving another perspective. But he's got the emergency powers. Uh, he gets to make the decisions unilaterally. But I do appreciate that I do have regular conversations with him. Do you have specific uh,
1: suggestions or a different plan? Um, I mean, I'm hearing a kind of a general, uh, I want to work with the governor, but could you give us a little more specifics? The governor said his plan opens it up to 80%. You've said, well, there are churches and a few other areas you'd like to see it expand. But I'm not hearing dramatic differences here. This doesn't seem like a, a kind of a parting of the, of the parties.
0: Yeah, the big thing would be sheltering in place just seniors and the vulnerable. I, I think that's a big step. I, I do think he'll get there. Uh, like I said, modeling showed we could have done that from the beginning that 's probably the biggest difference mm-hmm. and then I think if uh, if I would describe a difference, it would have been that I would have opened up everything except in other words, what are the things that we have the biggest problems you know the the stadiums and some of those things and so now i'm i'm working the governor has chosen a path, and so i 'm working with him in that path to move the dial so churches, for example, I had a meeting with the uh, a number of church leaders, Protestant and Catholic, in the last couple of weeks. And I helped arrange a meeting for the governor to meet with that group uh, this Monday, just a a couple days ago, uh, with the idea of letting them speak to him about how they've thought through the process of social distancing and and still having a church. And so that's, you know, we put out a website uh, with Senate Republicans just asking for input from businesses, uh, how would you do your business better? And we had over 2,000 people respond. Over 300 of them were the the, the salons, the barbershops, people like that. They've got a plan in place. And so I share that information with the governor because it's not about getting credit. It's about, okay, here's ideas that could work. And then he gets that to his uh, commissioner of deed and the people around him. And they've been implementing a number of the things that we uncovered. And so that's where Minnesota is doing it different. You know, in the end, you know, like I said from the beginning, the governor, if he's successful with this, that's really good for Minnesota. And so, you know, when I when I disagree, I'll I'll disagree, and but I'll do it in a way that I think is Minnesota nice.
1: Let me see if I can put my finger on one of the big differences here. The governor's plan uh, that he announced um, a few weeks ago said that uh, businesses, um, including restaurants and bars. Cannot invite customers into their workplace or sell directly to the customer. It sounds like what you're saying is yes, we should allow businesses to do that as long as they meet CDC uh, requirements, social distancing, uh,
0: hygiene. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and if you look at, for example, the model in Sweden, that at first people scoffed at what they were doing, you know, but frankly, they. From the very beginning, they didn't shelter. I don't know if they even sheltered seniors. I'm not sure on that part, but they practiced those guidelines within restaurants and, and uh, their spike was higher at first, but it, it appears to be uh, leveling off. But, but again, that, that is a difference. Uh, I think it's time to open up beauty shops. Uh, a lot of them are one person or two person businesses. Uh, for example, they could have one person in at a time, they could, they could have a, a different set of gloves for each person that they uh, talk to or, or cut their hair. Uh, they could have people wait in their car and text them when it's time to come in. These are all ideas that they thought of. They weren't my ideas. And so, you know, and restaurants, frankly, uh, I think chances are they have to have half as many people in. Uh, they could do outdoor seating to start if they need to. But the point is we can start moving towards these things. And then we have, we're going to have to monitor what do we do when there's an outbreak. And I think we should do it by area. So for example, in Worthington, where we had meatpacking problems, that's an area that should be treated differently than the rest of the state. And so, and I think the governor's on board with the fact that everybody should be tested there, that whos whos who doesn't have it and can continue to work, who's got the virus and needs to be out of there. I think we should consider a test or having the National Guard be engaged in, in filling in, in some of these positions in the food chain. So. As we move forward, there is risk, without a doubt, and the governor's aware of that too. Uh, it's just that sooner or later, we're gonna have to face moving forward with this. Uh, if they estimate roughly 5% of the population has the virus now, you know some of the experts say, we gotta get to 60, 70% over a period of time. And so that's, that's the struggle. And everybody's dealing with that across the world, uh, but sooner or later, we have to face living with this and, and moving forward.
1: Uh, I'm sure you saw today's reports about the economy. Um, it was very sobering. Uh, the economy shrank by 4.8%. Um, it's one of the worst drops we've seen in, in a number of decades. And this was based on <clears throat> relatively small part of this first quarter. Uh, it was only about 20% of the first quarter. So we know we in the second quarter, which we are in now, it's gonna be even worse. The part of the report I thought was particularly striking was the, um, the collapse really of consumer spending. Uh, it's the worst drop we've seen since uh, four decades. Um, and we've also seen a drop our consumer confidence. My question is, as you're thinking about policy and what the government should be doing, how are you gonna rebuild the confidence of consumers that it's safe for them to start to spend money, to go to restaurants, to go to beauty salons, to you know, resume that kind of dynamo that had uh, charged our economy just a few months ago?
0: It's exactly the right question. And you know, the, the confidence comes in understanding the virus and who is at risk. And you know about a week ago, there was only one death in Minnesota under age 60, now I think it's three. The youngest was 44, but that person was in a, a nursing home, which means they had to have huge problems. But the mean age of, of the person that dies from COVID is 86. You know, my dad died at 79 of, of just normal life expectancy. And so, you know, as we begin to understand who's at risk and who's um, at less risk, I think we can have more confidence. So, you know, we do that with and I'm not correlating it to the flu, other than to say a lot of people die from the flu, and yet we still live our life. COVID COVID can be much more serious. Um, we have a lot of accident, car accidents every year, and yet we we move forward. And it's so it's not. I'm not minimizing COVID-19. I'm simply saying we we need to learn to live with the risk and let our confidence grow. And it was no surprise to me that the economy is is hit the way it is when government ac- across the world shuts down an economy i I, I don't think they realize that it's it's more fragile than that i mean you can see it in an individual country that that suddenly takes a different direction and how they treat the the free enterprise system and how it immediately collapses well we've done this worldwide countrywide you know we're all in it together but we're going to be all in it together to get out of it as well and and i think we can
1: i have a hunch about this i think part of the um the collapse of consumer confidence is tied to fear. And the fear is lack of a vaccine. Everyone is potentially vulnerable uh, if, if you're not practicing social uh, distancing. And the fact that if you do get sick, there's no reliable treatment. Um, if we're able to you know, make progress on those two fronts, then I think we'll probably make more progress in uh, convincing people to take on the risk. Today, I'd probably for some number of uh, consumers, it feels like a death sentence to go to a restaurant.
0: Yeah, and that's where the fear level is right now, but that's also why I'm saying look at, at the percentage of people and, and the age they're dying at and where they're dying. The vast majority are dying in nursing homes. It's not the everyday person out and about active in life, and and that's the part we have to to. Except as a difficulty in how we manage this, how do we make sure we take care of seniors that are uh, most vulnerable? That that's the group that I'm most concerned about as we're as we're approaching this. But but for the rest of us, the risk level is I think much lower than what people feel. Right? And so it's not that it's it's a risk. It is, but so is a risk that you're going to lose your job and not make your house payment and have all of the other. Uh, emotional issues on the other side of this, and so that's how we've we've got to really somehow we've got to get to that point. I, I more and more people I see um, are starting to say, "Hey, I need to live my life. I need to move forward," and so that will also increase coo- uh, consumer confidence as they realize they can uh, in a in a safe way. It'll be different, but I, I think it's happening. Um,
1: Governor Waltz has uh, uh, declared a a peacetime emergency. And with that, he has enormous power. Um, you know, reading the statute of his power, it, there's no limit on it. There's nothing there about the legislature. It's the governor will, and then it goes through a list of things, including um, uh, ensure the preparations will be adequate to deal with disasters, preserve the life and property of the people of the state. It's wide open. It's about as... Much of a
0: blank check, I think, as I've ever seen.
1: Uh, you
0: feeling good about that these days? No, I'm. I'm not. Uh, I, I, you know, it's important that the legislative branch have the voice that they've meant to have. Um, it is a serious crisis, and you look back after whether it's the president with emergency powers or governors, and you, and most people say in most crises, you know, they went beyond the powers that they had. Um, it's because they're trying to you know navigate something by themselves, and that's. That's the the benefit of the legislative branch as an equal branch of government, and with emergency powers it's not equal and so we're trying I'm trying to encourage the governor to get back to that um, one example the the federal government gave us a little over two billion dollars that's in a just dropped into a bank account that the governor can spend unless we have legislative oversight and so i'm I'm encouraging the governor and his team that. It's in his best interest, and it's in Minnesota's best interest if, if we go back to what it's supposed to be—legislative oversight—and in Minnesota that means the the House, which is Democrat, and the Republic, the the Senate's Republican. So, it would be a bipartisan solution. I think we would get better solutions doing. You
1: ensure, though, as you do that, that the normal legislative process doesn't kick in, which involves delays, some often stalemate, um, as. I think, as you've been saying, we are in a crisis situation. Decisions have to be made. And one of the concerns, no doubt, of the legislators of both parties who wrote this wide open blank check for the governor is uh, someone's got to act. And um, the governor is the chief executive. So what is it about the process uh, in the legislature that can produce an outcome that we rarely see?
0: So I think everybody recognizes that this is a crisis, um, this pandemic. Uh, We gave the governor over $500 million uh, to spend, but we we chose to have oversight Um, and we respond, every one of his requests, we responded within 24 hours, usually within 30 minutes of the request because everybody gets the the difficult uh, place that we're in. And so that's, you know, moving forward, I think that same attitude would be there with money coming from the federal government. So yes, it's a crisis and the governor, you know, declared the emergency powers. I think it's longer than it's ever been in my lifetime. I'm 60 and I think he easily could uh, declare another 30 days May um, 12th and then that would bring us to June and he could easily declare another 30 days then. And the only way we can stop it is if the House and the Senate both agree that it's stopped. And so, you know, and that's an interesting little twist in Minnesota too, because the House is Democrat and there's, you know, I don't think they want to factor in the political side, but there is a political side. And then the Republicans control the Senate. So we both have to do it to stop it.
1: By the way, just by way of historical marker, um, when Tim Pawlenty was governor, he was also quite eager to, to try to push the limits of his authority. Uh, and it was the Republicans who were uh, silent, um, and it was the Democrats who were raising questions. Uh, it's probably natural. I want to get yeah. to a few few questions we've got here, and I've been uh, filtering them in. Um, one question, uh, do you have a sense of what Minnesota could have done better to protect the vulnerable, particularly the large number of uh, Minnesotans who've died in assisted living
0: uh, facilities. You know, I don't know how much we could have done better uh, in that area because I have my mother, mother-in-law and father-in-law are both in an assisted living facility and they were quarantined well before uh, the, the governor did the shelter in place. So they, they saw this as a, a problem, just looking across the world and And yet that's still the the group that's going to be most impacted and most susceptible. And so, you know, it's, it's it's very difficult to completely stop this virus, just like it is difficult to stop the flu. It just, it's, it's very contagious. So um, I think the steps we took were very, very good and very early in that regard, but I don't know what else I would do than what we've been doing.
1: Um, We have a number of questions on the theme of, Uh, how the coronavirus is impacting uh, different uh, racial and economic groups, uh, whether it's in terms of uh, lack of housing or food or its impact in terms of education. If you are in a white middle-class household, you're more likely to have a computer and therefore can conduct uh, learning online, whereas that's much less likely if, if you're someone of color in a lower income household. Do you have thoughts about, you know, these these widening disparities in Minnesota?
0: First of all, I agree with that. As we're looking at it, um, you know, we already had a a disparity issue with the kids of color in, you know, particularly inner city and and not doing as well as as, uh, kids of color in other urban areas around the country. And so, um, but the the comment about they don't have this good of, connections with using the internet is is true Uh, we talked about broadband as a rural issue but it I think is also an an issue in some of these areas as well and so that was one of the reasons I hope the governor would would open up find a way to open up the schools differently but that's how serious it is I'm going to take a sip of coffee here so hang on At much better but so that's an area that we're looking at you know because it could be a similar situation this fall and if that's the case what are we going to do and so I'm frankly open for question or um, input from people on if we still have the same scenario next fall what can we do to help some of the kids of, of color in particular that I think will will fall farther behind as a result of this.
1: Did you recommend to the governor that he open schools again?
0: You know, I was hoping that we would have at least the end of school for seniors. So that means uh, their graduation prom, you know, maybe we do it in a way that you, you know, the graduation, for example, maybe it's just mom and dad that get to go. Uh, The the sports at the end, you know, maybe that you just don't have people in the stands, but there's some key uh, benchmarks for kids when they're finishing and going off into the next level of their lives. And I would still like to find a way to to, to do at least that um, the distance learning i've been talking to folks uh, where I, I talked to a particular person three weeks ago, and they were very upset because nobody was really being able to do it. Teachers weren't on board the way this parent had hoped. I talked to her again today she said, "You know, I think we've sort of adapted to this new scenario. We feel like the teachers are are you know up and running doing the things they need to do and so People are adjusting to it, but some of those key things, key events, I wish we could find a way to do it. So thinking
1: about the fall, um, you've talked about the possibility of opening up K to 12 education. Do you have a view about the University of Minnesota and the Minn state um, uh, uh, schools and, and classrooms? Should those schools be opening up as well?
0: I would like to find a way to do that. And, and I know there's a risk that, you know, that, but that isn't the population that they themselves um, will be dramatically harmed by it, but, you know, they can be carriers. And that's the other part of this that is so challenging. But eventually we have to figure out how to live our lives. Um, you know, we're, we're asking each industry, each sector, how are you going to do what you do in a safer way? And so that's your job, Larry, you got to figure that out for me.
1: I'll tell you, all my classes at the University of Minnesota are pretty full. I mean, there is no social distancing. It, the distancing is, you know, practically knee to knee. So we'd really have to overcome
0: that. Um, and uh, luckily there are people thinking about that. Any way you could do, for example, well, I was going to say, do twice as many, buddy. You can do it, you know, half, <laughs> half, half the half the class size. But, but we've got to figure it out. And, and I think it's, uh, especially this fall quarter coming up, I think the farther out we get, the more likely it is we have a vaccine and the more likely we have more herd immunity, but the fall, I think, will be an issue that we have to face.
1: Yeah. Um, Let's talk about uh, a looming consequence of what's happened, which is the budget. In Minnesota, our constitution uh, forbids us from having a deficit. And we've seen the budget situation uh, flipped from having a surplus of 1.3 billion to most likely being in a deficit, which will become clear next week when we get the budget forecast. What are your thoughts about how we handle the uh, budget deficit we're likely to face at a time when spending uh, in this crisis appears to be imperative?
0: So when, when the governor ordered the first shelter in place, um, I knew the consequences to our economy would be, would be great. And so I've had some great conversations with the commissioner of MMB um, about doing hiring freezes, renegotiating uh, contracts, thinking about how do we position ourselves for uh, a likely deficit uh, next year. It, it's not even likely anymore. Everybody says it's gonna be a deficit Uh, We're going to get some numbers in May, but they're actually going to do another budget forecast in August. That will be a much more accurate picture. May is is not going to be all that accurate because if we delay some of the taxes that are due, which is something I hope we get done, uh, the numbers aren't going to be clear. But it's going to be extremely difficult. And all across um, the industry and sectors, you see University of Minnesota making some adjustments, Mayo Clinic making adjustments, the state you has now done a hiring freeze. And so they're, you know, they're figuring out ways to bend the spending curve. And so it's going to be really difficult. I had one uh, budget that we were $6 billion in the hole in November. It th- then it went to $5 billion in the hole. And that was extremely difficult. Well, what if we're 8 to $10 billion short? What would that look like? And so It's gonna be a very, very difficult job next year. I I wanna make sure we keep the majority so that we have a bipartisan solution, but uh, it's not gonna be easy.
1: Minnesota, uh, over a number of years, has built up a strategic reserve. Uh, It's about two and a half billion. Yeah. Um, Do you expect to use that to fill this gap?
0: Yes. Yeah, I, I think uh, if you look at the, the budget reserves, that was a, a bipartisan um, a decision. I really, I think Rod Skoy, uh, who's no longer, he was the tax chair Democrat, uh, I think was the leading force behind that. But that's in place, which is really good uh, for us right now. That was meant for a rainy day. Well, next year is going to be a rainy day. And I think that the, the Myron Franz and M&B did a hiring freeze. It It, it basically allows us to begin to bend that curve ahead of time. And that, that was really smart. I mean, it, it positions us in a good place. State contracts, um, you know, they were uh, negotiated and the, the first raise came last July. And we're now supposed, to, if, if we approve the contract in the next three weeks or so, they get another raise this July. And so I'm, I'm saying, I think they should renegotiate that. I'm willing to have a compromise on that, but renegotiating that would save hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And so each little piece that we think about is just critical right now. And so it is, you know, it's a crisis, but in a crisis, there is an opportunity to to rethink how we do things, how we do government, how we do business, local governments. I'm asking them to, to pay attention to their budgets because they shouldn't expect a big new revenue source from the state next year.
1: Uh, you've no doubt noticed that uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, uh, responding to pressure for more money for states and local government, said that uh, they should consider going bankrupt. Is that an option in Minnesota? Should we consider going bankrupt?
0: No, and and I'm frankly I'm I'm glad that uh, in Minnesota we have to balance the budget. You know that we can't just you know spend money we don't have it, it makes for difficult years when we have to figure it out, either raising taxes, lowering spending, or both. My cat just clawing me down below here. <laughs> makes me... Anyway, sorry about that. But, um, but anyway, that's, that's where I, I think we need to be as we're going to look at the whole picture, but, you know, our local governments, our townships, our cities, our counties, all play a very, very important role in, in how we do life in Minnesota. And so, uh, the theme is we're all in it together. Well, we are in all all in it together, and so I'm I'm reaching out to all of my counties. I represent four, and I just talked about the fact that what can you do right now? Don't wait for next year to to wonder where we're at. Start now, and we'll all be in a better spot as we we come into next January.
1: Number of questions from people saying, uh, "Okay, we have to accept greater risk." but we also need to count on our neighbors uh, and other folks in Minnesota to be responsible and abiding by the CDC guidelines, social distancing, hygiene. What if we've got a number of people who are in a workplace or in a school uh, or in a shopping market uh, that are not wearing masks, that are not abiding by social distancing, uh, who are not covering when they cough? How do we handle those situations?
0: Well, I didn't support the governor's hotline to turn in your neighbor. I just felt like, you know, we we can peer pressure each other. And you are going to have some people that um, just are, are not smart. And we, you know, we can't control everybody's way of life uh, and not give up a lot of liberty. But I do think that Minnesotans are, they get this, and generally speaking, as a, as a population, we're all in this together. And, and I, everywhere I go, I see almost everybody doing the things that, that they're supposed to do. The mask is the only one that I, I think, I don't know that um, the complete science is out on that. If you've got a cough or sneezing or allergies or a sick, you ought to be wearing a mask uh, to not give it to somebody else. Um, you know, but, but I, all the, a lot of the small businesses I talk to, they're all going to have a mask. And, and part of it is frankly, because they want people to feel safe, you know, and so, but, but I think Minnesotans in general, we get this, we know this is a big deal and we are working together.
1: Do you know, if Mike Pence is a Minnesotan.
0: I, I, no, I didn't.
1: <laughs> well, I, love, just... I
0: love that. Uh, you know, and you know, his message for not wearing the mask is look, he wanted to talk. And I, and I've got to tell you, at 60, I have, I have hearing aids and it is harder for me to hear people that have that mask on because I can't, even though I have hearing aids, I can't read their lips and it feels like they're mumbling, you know, and that's just one of the dynamics we'll have to work through.
1: Lots of questions here about the elections coming up in the fall um, and concern that the choice is going to be between exercising the right to vote and obviously a critical election the national level, and here in Minnesota, where the House and the Senate are both up, um, and the risk from the coronavirus. What's your uh, thought about how Minnesota should handle uh, that uh, predicament come the fall?
0: So, and we think that could be here in the fall. We don't know that for sure. But um, if, first of all, for the individual, if you are concerned about going, uh, to uh, your local place that you normally vote, you can get an absentee ballot and there's there 's no questions anybody in Minnesota can get one, and that would be if I was concerned i would I would go get one but but i 'm you know but for a lot of people that actually want to go vote and I would say they you know you should be washing your hands before you go in to your voting place and you should wash your hands when you leave i mean that way you're you're controlling uh, what you're spreading around there. I think having masks on to come in and vote. Um, I think everybody should follow some procedures that I don't think have been completely laid out yet, but, but anybody that doesn't want to right now in Minnesota doing nothing can get an absentee ballot and do that.
1: Do You think we should be encouraging people uh, you know, there's some folks saying we should have 50, 60, 70% of Minnesotans voting by mail just, avoid the, the risk of showing up at a voting booth?
0: Well, it's going to be curious to see what uh, actually, how many people want to do that. I think there was a poll that 60 per, 62% you know, thought the idea of complete uh, uh, mail-in ballots was the way to go. I don't. I, I, there, you, going that route, I think you do have more risk of potential fraud. I'm not saying there would be fraud Um, they call it uh, ballot harvesting, where people will collect the ballots and bring them in. And and right now we have some good guidelines in Minnesota, the postmaster, the mailman can handle it, a relative can handle it, but not many people because we are concerned about the process. And the election integrity, integrity to me is a big deal. And I'm concerned about going too far but also allowing the fact that Minnesotans, if they really want to get one, they can get one and there's no questions asked.
1: The Heritage Foundation, which of course is a conservative uh, operation, they've been uh, tracking for 20 years vote by mail. There's 250 million votes in their data set. Um, And I was looking at this. Their data set shows that there have been about 1,200 cases of vote fraud. so it, it's, it's tiny, tiny, tiny. Um, does that mean that in a crisis that we can have some confidence, particularly given Minnesota's squeaky clean record um, with elections, that we should err in 2020 towards something pretty close to uh, vote by mail for just about everybody, maybe even mailing registered voters a ballot?
0: Well, you know, that's not exactly where, where I'm at on that. Uh, but I do want to encourage people if they want to feel safe can do that. And typically, the reason that a, a township or a groups do mail in is because it's large geography. There's not many people there, you know, and so, you know, I don't know, you know, I haven't seen the, the heritage uh, data. so I certainly willing to take a look at that. But, you know, like I said, I, I still have concern over that. I just think the, the system we have in place where you present yourself. Frankly, I, I think we ought to have photo ID for voting, but I'm not going to win that one this year just because of the election integrity factor for me. I want to make sure that that is always protected. You know, the other one that we would like is is um, the provisional ballots that they they you get to vote if you don't have your ID, but it doesn't count until you verify who you are. Minnesota is one of just a handful of states that that vote counts and they never really check it, um, you know, and I just think, you know, it, it's about election integrity for me. Yes, we have a pandemic. I don't know if it's going to be here in the fall. I encourage people if they want to feel safe, safer, that they should then you know, get a ballot. But I see, you know, for example, people go to Menards or Walmart or Target, or, you know, they're way busier than the, the election night's going to be. Um, And people feel comfortable there, but they still, they do the mask, they they wash their hands, they do the things that I I think we should be doing.
1: Just a footnote, the uh, state of Utah, which of course is a heavily Republican state, does voting entirely by mail. And their secretary of state says they have no concern about fraud. They think uh, they have more interaction with voters uh, who are active, they're able to clean their uh, database of uh, voters who are no longer alive or in the state, they feel like it's actually greater security to do all uh, voter by mail. Let me move yeah. on to a, another question. Um, Secretary of State uh, Steve Simon has uh, worked on a compromise with uh, Republicans in the house on kind of, I would say a halfway house. Uh, It would encourage vote by mail, but it would also open up more polling stations. And I think part of the idea there is to get uh, voting uh, out of the seniors' homes. There are two or three dozen or or four dozen of those. As you've been saying, we don't want to be kind of bringing in the risk of infection to seniors. Uh, Greater sanitation, you know, these sort of steps that seem, I don't know, strike me as pretty practical. Would that be something that you could see the Senate uh, passing or seriously considering?
0: Yes, um, you know the idea is you know having some common sense here, and and actually well, as you started that question, I there's another compromise that we're working on for elections as well, and that is that um, because the Republican National Convention is so late, our laws would prevent uh, Trump from being on the ballot, which is kind of crazy, and so we're working through a compromise with that, and then the other. Uh, piece that we all care about is the Help America Vote Act money, the federal money for election security. So that's another one that we're working on putting the two together just to let's do the common sense, thing, common sense things that we all think um, are, we can agree to. And all those things you mentioned and what I just mentioned are part of that.
1: One idea I heard floating around in DFL circles was that the governor, A. Waltz, could use his emergency powers. Uh, if things got worse as you moved into the fall, uh, we had a second wave and the numbers were spiking, uh, that he could use emergency powers to establish something pretty close to uh, vote by mail with the ballots being mailed to all
0: registered voters. Is that something that you could imagine happening? or you know, I haven't heard that directly from him, but I have heard others say, that they have verified what we say, that it's not something you can do with emergency powers, but he has not told me that directly.
1: Uh, We have uh, some questions here about bonding. Uh, Even years is when the legislature typically does bonding, which is it borrows money, usually for capital improvements. uh, And typically there's a battle between the two parties about how much to spend This year, the governor's talked about 2.6 billion. Uh, He did that in the early part of the year, I think in February. What's your view about the amount of bonding that is appropriate for the coronavirus era and where you would focus that spending?
0: So as we get to the finish line here, which is just three, three weeks away or so, there's three areas that I'm asking everybody to keep the eye on the ball. One is the bonding bill. The second one is, is legislative oversight over the, the federal money. And the third one is, is different components of tax relief. Not so much, uh, mo- mostly focused on extending uh, tax due dates, waiving penalties, that kind of stuff. And so those three are the three that we're working towards the end. The bonding bill will likely pass out of our capital investment committee, if it, if it hasn't already happened, a base bonding bill of $755 million. That's what, uh, without having to uh, factor in any more uh, money to service it, that's the number that comes up. Governor's at two point whatever, and I'm convinced we'll be somewhere in between there. But uh, I am committed, as I think all three other legislative leaders, House, Senate, Republican, Democrat, are all committed to getting a bonding bill done this year that uh, focuses on wastewater infrastructure, roads and bridges, keeper, all of the main components of a, a bonding bill. And, and I'll be disappointed if we don't get that done.
1: Okay. Uh, you started the year with a pretty aggressive agenda. Um, I seem to remember uh, discussion about ending social security taxes. Um, I seem to remember uh, some discussion of voter ID and guns and, um, Child care and obviously education and some other issues. Has that all been swept away?
0: A lot of it has, you know, in the end, uh, all hands on deck with COVID-19 and then with the budget shortfall, you know, I've told our folks, just let's focus on the COVID-19, getting our economy back and running. And uh, what can we, how do we make sure we're fo- looking at the budget going forward and how we're spending money and um, the other thing that makes it so difficult is we're doing every, many things uh, with Zoom and we're not there nearly as often. And everything, though it still works, takes much more work. And so, you know, the Social Security was one of my passionate issues that I feel like you know, Minnesota is out of step with the rest of the country. I think it's a dozen or so states that tax Social Security income. Why should we be doing that? Uh, but in the end, it's the price tags about $400 million, I think a year, and we're not going to have it, you know, and so now's the time, now's not the time to do it. I, And so rather than try to keep that to the end as a piece, I decided I'm going to let it go now and just let people know that we, we need to finish on those things I've been mentioning, make sure we get those done.
1: Uh, we've got a question here about um, actually taxes, uh, private sector employers, are obviously cutting their own spending, they're cutting employees. Uh, why is government expecting to get money from taxpayers uh, when taxpayers may not have uh, that money?
0: Actually, I would say state government, uh, Myron Franz, Commissioner of Management and Budget, already recognizes we're gonna get a lot less revenue because it's directly related to if people are working or not working if people are buying things or not buying things. And so we just don't know how much less it's gonna be, but you know, everything is tied together. If, if the economy's not doing well, much less money comes into the state and local governments. And so, um, but it, it's not a surprise. We all see what's happening and we're trying to uh, adapt to it right now.
1: Uh, question, another question, one of the bills that wasn't able to be considered this session Relates to banning conversion practices uh, that seek to change sexual orientation or gender identity of Minnesota youth. Uh, do you have a sense if that's going to come up?
0: Well, I doubt it, other than maybe an event amen- or a conversation piece. Uh, I thought we were close last year, basically banning um, the archaic practices that were brought up as shock treatment or. Uh, that kind of thing or banning some of the advertisement um, you know, the, the, the tricky part was, um, what do you do, uh, with somebody that, um, you know, you have their, their, uh, religious viewpoint. I'm talking about an adolescent who's struggling with trying to follow that versus, you know, trying to follow, follow a uh, sexual orientation, uh, desires. And, and should they not be able to talk to a counselor and try to figure out their life? And so, uh, it's, it's, it's just not as easy as we thought it would be just to find some agreement there. But, uh, but, but that has been off the burner since COVID-19 hit. Virtually everything has been off the the burner since then. And so I I don't know that I see anything happening this year.
1: Um, The legislature will adjourn. Uh, Maybe there's a special session, maybe not. Um, And the, the uh, coronavirus um, situation may Uh, fade, but there are a number of people talking about that it may uptick again uh, come the fall. Do you have a sense of um, uh, how the Legislative Advisory Commission uh, uh, would operate if the uh, legislature is adjourned?
0: So we'll call it the LAC. Um, Basically, we're an advisory to the executive branch, to the governor. uh, So we can't we can't we can disapprove of how money's being spent under that council if it's being if it's about money but we can't stop it you know so it's basically uh, t- the money's released ten days later if we didn't agree or we agree right away and the money's available there so that that would continue that way that's part of the reason we're advocating for federal money being under a different government oversight where, where the legislative branches actually have to agree and that That would be similar to what we did back in 2009, I believe it was, 9 or 10. We got federal stimulus money, and there was language that was passed that basically said the House and Senate had to agree. And so that's the part we haven't worked out yet, but that would continue into the summer. If the governor calls us back into special session, that would happen June 13th. Uh, let's say he wanted to extend his emergency powers and then we would be back into special session uh, basically until the legislative branch decided to, to be dumb. And so and my guess is we would then stay working with the governor after that point. Uh,
1: uh, President Trump uh, has, has been uh, picking a fight with governors and states uh, pretty consistently, uh, you know, liberate Minnesota, liberate uh, Kentucky, liberate uh, Michigan, and it 's really charged up some of the Republican base, um, and then there's you know things like you know ingesting lysol and other things that have confused uh, so um, many Americans. Is Donald Trump helping or hurting your effort to pursue common sense solutions in a very difficult uncertain time
0: well uh, president trump's the most unique president we 've ever had, and at least in my lifetime. Um, and uh, he, you know, fairly often just says what uh, is he's thinking at the moment. Um, if you look at the crisis overall, I think he's done a great job. Frankly, uh, when the World Health Organization didn't give us the data coming out of China, he'd already long before we knew he, he stopped flights coming from that region of China um, and began to act, but, but uh, he also you know, likely or made some missteps along the way, sometimes says some things uh, that I would wish he wouldn't say, but I would say the same thing of, of Governor Walz. I think he's trying to make the best choices he can. He's been, uh, made made decisions early, I think that have been good, and then I think he makes some decisions that aren't exactly where I want to be, but, but in the end, I'm, I'm focused on, you know, the governor and the president being successful I do have contacts to the White House too where where I get information up to him as well. Um and so that's you know, he's not perfect, but neither is our governor and neither am I.
1: Yeah, you know, I I'd accept that there are missteps and if you're in government that happens. But some of the president's comments, um, you know, such as the comment about uh you know taking Lysol, uh it's just you know, it's, it's not like anything I've ever seen in politics. It's just, uh, irresponsible. Um, but I understand you've got a position to hold and I'm not giving you a, a hard time about that. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. And this has been a great conversation, uh, for folks who are not from Minnesota or, or are from Minnesota and may not be familiar with Senator Kazalka. I hope you had a chance to, uh, get a better feel for someone who I think is, uh, much more pragmatic than um, Republicans and Democrats we see around the country. I realize, and I can see this in the questions, that people have uh, disagreements. Some of them are intense, but that's (laughs) what the political process is for. And I want to just thank you, Senator, for your uh, efforts to carry on a conversation to uh, try to meet people where they are, um, given your own set of principles and the demands of your colleagues. So
0: thank you for being with us. Yeah, I appreciate it. And, you know, that's what I appreciate about being in the public is I get uh, so many people with so many perspectives, um, but most legislators, Republican and Democrat, trying to do the best they can with the knowledge that comes to them with the worldview that they approach it with. And, you know, so and, and they're typically not as evil as, as people think on either side of the aisle. We're, we're just trying to do right by Minnesota.
1: We have run out of time. I want to just let people know if you'd like to listen to this program, it's recorded and will be posted online. Um, And if you registered, we'll get you that information. Um, And I want to thank the people who are responsible for organizing this, uh, particularly uh, um, uh, Lee Chittenden, Mike Carey, and Kate Connors. Thank you very, very much. Um, This has been a terrific uh, conversation, welcome you back. Uh, We have another one next week on uh, vote by mail and how to handle uh, the coronavirus during an election. Thank you once again. Have a good day. Thank you.